Head to congress.com slash podcast to follow along with today's episode, see all the pictures and links of stuff we're talking about, and don't forget to subscribe. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to The Front Lounge with Congos. This is our fourth or fifth or sixth, depending on what order we put it out, this episode. And we have a very special guest, our good friend and monitor engineer, Garen Rains. Hello. Hey, Garen. How's it going? So, how do you spell your name? Let's get that clear off the bat. Oh, man. Well, it starts with a G, uh, and then it goes E-R-O-N. So, when we get into a venue for the first time... You say, hey, my name's Garen, but just call me G. Yeah, pretty much, because people read my name, they'll always say Jerome, or Jerin, or... Jerry, Gerald. Yeah, Gerald. Well, what's uh, the running joke you guys had going? Everyone, you and Mo, someone was like just subtly calling him Gerald every time you'd call him? Yeah, you just put it, you would throw it away. Hey, Gerald, you can do it. Just to see if he was... I think uh, I think this is the first time we've ever set up microphones and plugged them in for you. That's right. <laughs> I, had, I had no part in setting up these mics. Well, maybe just explain to our audience what a monitor engineer is so that sure. they, so they know who they're listening to. Yeah, so typically on uh, any show you go to, there's two audio engineers uh, um, for most bands, and one of those is the front of house engineer. For us, that's uh, Mick and... Uh, that he's the one that mixes the audio for the audience. He he controls all the uh, the sound that people listen to out front. Um, and then my job is to mix all of the audio for each of the band members. So, um, you know, I've got uh, four mixes of the band plus the crew and, and some other things going on that. So I'm handling a couple more mixes, uh, but it's all in our in-ears rather than through the speakers up front of the house. So just to, to break it down real clear for everybody, for anyone who's not you know, involved in music or audio for any reason, a mix is basically the balance of all the different instruments and microphones and everything uh, that we each individually, each band member gets their own custom mix so that I, if I can hear more of myself if I want, uh, which is usually the case. Yeah, yours is usually just your, your vocal. <laughs> that's because it, it's got to be loud to get it over those drums <laughs> and before the in-ear monitors which were 90s right maybe 80s yeah uh there who was the first band actually that started using them one of those massive bands it was like kiss or something like that um uh, they were used wedges which are basically speakers that look wedge-shaped and they would blast up on the stage so the mm-hmm. stage volume was louder and everything and now you'll see most bands of a certain size using at least partially in years. I know, like yeah. a lot of singers still like a wedge, but so whenever you see people on the the fucking Grammys taking their earpiece out, they're not getting uh, radio signals as to what to say. They're having a problem monitoring their own voice or whatever. I think also if you've ever played with in ears and where you have only an in ear mix and something goes wrong. When you see a catastrophic failure on stage of a band that basically falls apart or a singer that cannot sing in tune, like that is actually a real thing. They're not just shit singers. Like if you can't hear yourself, oftentimes, yeah, yeah. sometimes, well, it, sometimes yeah. they're shit singers. But it, it, it's a really <laughs> big deal if you lose your monitoring or you can't hear it properly. Depending yeah. on the size of the stage, yeah, if the stage is big, it's a bigger deal. Yeah, or especially if you're if you're running some form of, form of tracks as well, mm-hmm. it's very easy for things to fall completely apart if. 
you know, right. the drummer loses his in your pack or something. <laughs> I was like just that. reading about the Who and Pete Townsend. He was all into his his sequenced synth pods. You know, you can yeah. hear him on all and all those Who tracks. And so they used to play with that. And I think Keith Moon and the rest of the guys just hated it. They hated because they were running a tape machine mm. of recorded synth parts that they were having to lock up with. But yeah, they're only getting a wedge mix. You know, it was back in the day when you didn't have an easy way to have 10 different monitor mixes, you know. Well, so, couldn't you imagine, you, if anyone's seen Keith Moon play, he's, he was loud as shit. He just was a maniac on the drums. Yeah. And if you've ever sat at a drum kit and hit it, you know how loud it is. And now imagine a speaker next to him blasting <laughs> loud enough to get over that so that he can hear it and stay on track with it. It's, it there's, you'll go deaf after three gigs. I, I think I still actually have left ear, a little bit of damage in my left ear from all the lost leaf gigs we used to do before we had proper in-ear monitors and Jesse's snare drum. I just happened to be sitting on the right of him and the snare drum just would murder yeah. my left ear. Yeah, I have, even even for me as an engineer, I have a little bit of distortion in my left ear uh, from when I was like, how old was I? I was probably 20, 20 years old, so seven years ago, and uh, I had headphones on, but just with the left ear, and someone clicked open a channel, and it was just blaring loud, or something like that happened, and it like just was the loudest thing I've ever had in my life, and I think I kind of did a little bit of damage there, so I still get yeah, it. It's annoying. A little bit. Mm. We went, uh, did you come with us to the Sure factory? No, I did not. Uh, there's a thing called an anechoic chamber, where they it's this very um, complicated pattern on the walls of foam and different wood and stuff like that to disperse sound and absorb sound to get a room as silent as possible and they use it for testing microphones or testing other equipment where they need a perfectly silent room and so this, it stops all the reflections of, yeah. of sound yeah when you walk on a suspended wire cage almost right yeah and uh you can go in there and you can hear your tinnitus first you'll hear your your mm. everybody's you'll hear your ears ringing yeah um you'll hear your heartbeat next and then some people even say they can hear their lymphatic system so they can hear their lymph nodes you know directing whatever around glands and hormone stuff. traffic <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, yeah that was a scary thing going into that anechoic chamber i remember the first time we did it just hearing how bad and how loud the tinnitus was i was like yeah. oh geez so they say now, this is gonna be a problem <laughs> they say that people can only last about 45 minutes before they really start freaking out because yeah, we should put a, put a photo because it's kind of hard to picture this, mm. you know. Yeah. So Sure is a company that makes microphones and headphones and all kinds of audio gear, and they actually sponsor us. They, you know, we, all of our microphones on stage and uh, wireless monitoring systems is all made by Sure, and they've been super cool to us. So they gave us a tour of the factory, or the headquarters, and if you imagine it's like a like a matrix kind of thing. You walk out on this net, basically a wire net. And below you, 10 feet, is space. And there's all these weird shapes of foam sticking out. It feels like a sci-fi movie, basically. <laughs> and they have this speaker on an, on an arm that swivels so that they can make a noise at any part of the room and the, or place a microphone. And they do extensive testing on all their microphones to kind of measure them. The funniest thing at the Shure factory was, because so many Shure mics are used in live environments, they need to be kind of tough and rugged and stuff, so they... they uh, they 
you know, stress test them. And they had a microphone stand with a button that would drop the microphone stand <laughs> in a room. So there's engineers in there just putting mics on stands and, you know, throwing them over, seeing how many... For, for every I, asshole that finishes a joke and thinks it's funny to drop, do a mic drop. Right. That's because uh, some geniuses in, at the Shure factory were, <laughs> were throwing mics on the ground 300 <laughs> times to, to make your little dramatic uh, flare possible. <laughs> so, uh, Garen, you've been working for us now for... We were talking about it last night, like three and a half years almost. Or we met three and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, it's but, almost been uh, in January. Yeah. G- January. Uh, it'll be three years since we did our first tour together. Yeah, and this is the first kind of extended break that you've had, which uh, we were on tour for a long time in 2014, 15, 16. So most of the time for these last three years you've been with us. But any time that we weren't touring, you were working for someone else. Yeah. And now this is the first time you've had any type of extended break. Who else have you been working with in the last uh, couple of years and in between like our tours? Yeah, um, uh, a number of bands. Uh, see, I was working for Ratatat. Uh, I worked for this guy, Vince Staples. Um, I worked for a guy, Chris Tomlin. Uh, a couple of uh, bands in the Christian uh, market as well, uh, Urban Rescue and Ren Collective. Did Reliant and, K too. Oh uh, yeah, I was with Reliant K. Um, that well, that Reliant K was what Need to Breathe Reliant K or no? That was Switchfoot. Was oh, Switchfoot, Switchfoot Reliant right. K. Yeah. Um, this kind. Of, I mean, Garen is a perfect example of how this business works, particularly in the crew side of things. Is it? It seems to be ninety nine percent word of mouth. Like you got those gigs because you met this person on the road, and then they said, "Oh, I know this guy is good." And in fact, it's how we found you when we were touring yeah. in July of two thousand fourteen in Canada. We were out with, and the support band had you, and you were the tour manager, merch guy, driver. Front of house monitor, yeah. guitar cleaner upper. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't touch any guitars. I don't do that. <laughs> I'm assuming you had to divide the bill if you guys got like breakfast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The bill divider. So yeah, we yeah, saw that this. Be- that was before Square Cash or Venmo. Oh, that was a nightmare. Oh, man, days was the worst. <laughs> so it was literally the, the. It was you in the band, no other crews. So yeah, it was you, just me you, and the band. You were basically doing every job, and that's actually pretty common for. You know, bands starting out where they can yeah. pretty much only afford you know one or two crew, yeah. and so it's it's a lot to take on. But especially especially if you're trying to get into the world of touring, and you want to be a front of house engineer or tour yeah, manager it's, it's funny because that wasn't it, like when I was working with that band, it wasn't that wasn't my uh, my my goal wasn't to get into touring. I'd never really oh, thought really? about it. It wasn't something I was aspiring to. But I had a friend that was in the band, and he uh, he's like, "Hey, we need a front of house engineer." I was just like doing some small corporate things and working for a couple of small companies. And then he's like, Hey, we need someone to come out and tour manage in front of house. And he's like, can you do that? I was like, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) That's a pretty (laughs) funny moment to think about that. Whenever that would have been June, 2014 to, and then it's just like a whirlwind of four years. You've been around the world thousand times and you basically haven't been home. Like Dylan was saying, have you emptied your suitcase yet? You know, because when we go on tour, if there's a month break in between tours or, Less even even if it's a month, I'll leave my suitcase intact. Yeah, yeah, intact, all the clothes in it, and I only wash them and I'll put them back in my suitcase. I I won't unpack. I'll take select things out, you know, like shirts that I like to wear on my days off or stuff like that. (laughs) Um, Non-black shirts. What's also crazy when every day's a day off. (laughs) Wait, what? You have to eventually wear black clothing on days off. 
Yeah. Yeah, for people listening, basically, crew, especially if they're on stage, they wear all black so that they're not a distraction to the audience. And also, uh, you know, it's much more hard. It's harder to see that black clothes are dirty. Um, But (laughs) what's also crazy is that so you started off doing everything for that band. Yeah. And then you told me last night that you're going out on a January tour with Vince Staples Uh and you're going to be stage managing an arena show essentially like on arena stages which explain what stage managing um is yeah it's basically a a glorified traffic director um (laughs) no that's uh it's kind of managing the um the local crew that's helping us and uh being the the point of connection between all departments so between audio video lighting kind of someone to help orchestrate order and speed um we're we're support on that tour so we need to be up and down very quickly who's, uh, who's he supporting uh tyler the creator oh cool, yeah. oh, cool. how big is your crew uh that? that for that tour it'll be i think we'll have a crew of eight or nine and then local crew on each day is local crew will be a, a lot higher number than that because they're handling the, oh, nice. the headline and us, which we're bringing quite a bit of production on Are both accounts. So, uh, we'll have a truck as the support. Yeah. Okay, and then so one bus, one truck, one, uh, no, we'll be two buses, one truck. Uh, and then Tyler will probably be two or three of each. Mm. I would assume. Well, okay. So, uh, if it's, it's arenas, um, so to get paint a little picture, this is going to be kind of a technical podcast, but it will be, there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of fun stuff because we've had some great stories from the road together. But to paint a picture of an arena tour um, of that scope, so mm-hmm. now we're talking three, four semi semi trucks, yeah, uh, three to four or five buses. Um, they'll show up, and I'm guessing there's probably twenty to thirty thousand pounds of gear in each truck. Uh, yeah, actually, you can go upwards to like max that most uh trucking companies will allow is 70,000 pounds okay. of gear. And so, when you're doing arenas, you're carrying uh you're carrying a lot of motors, you're carrying a lot of steel mm-hmm. uh to hang things with and stuff like so that. So they're carrying their own PA. Um we won't be uh, mean, uh Tyler will. Tyler, no, Ty- we we won't be carrying a PA on that run. It's like it's small small arenas and huge venues. Okay. So the venues mostly all have uh audio systems installed already so we're not taking pa so stage managing i mean if you've ever seen backstage footage of venues that size you can see how many people are involved how much gear there is how many cables there are to run and it's actually quite an art i've you know we've seen it done really well and done uh, really badly on big and small tours where you know each riser each little platform that each musician has has to be it's like it is like directing traffic you know or air air airline yeah traffic you know parking this parking that which which one do we move first because you can there's only one way it can go forward or one way it can go backwards. it's also customer service because like you said you're the point between the local crew and then the traveling crew and so every day you're meeting 20 to 30 new people and you're going to deal with nice new people assholes and like the stage manager sets the mood and the tone for the whole thing yeah because we've had a couple of stage managers that are very aggressive and it sets the mood of the whole production into like a bit of a combative mood whereas when most stage managers for us like if we if we have a local crew guy that's upset we know that that guy is a dick because there's <laughs> no possible way for anyone to have a bad mood with Mo. That's so true. You know, he goes into it. So that's such a big part of it. And speaking of arena tours, that's my first memory of you, other than when we were on that uh, 
thing in Canada was we were in Nuremberg, Germany, it, backstage at uh, One Republic show, in the, sitting in the arena, thinking of who we could get to come work for us. And we all said, what about that guy? That one guy. <laughs> that one guy. Gerald. Gerald. <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> I, I'd like to, I actually suggested you, Garen, first. So just put, you know, just... just uh, just and I was you know, like, FYI, you know, your sure. indebtedness. Like, as long as is we clearly... exhaust every other possibility, we can try him out. And if it weren't for us, you would have been a complete failure. Nobody else would have recognized you, your talent. Yeah. It was our unique perception that well, allowed you a path out of the the mud. That it, that was kind of <laughs> kind of kind of fun putting that all together because we were. I think it was November or December. We were uh, opening for One Republic in Europe, and. That whole year we had been touring and we had only had a front of house engineer and he was doing both monitors and front of house on the same console and it was getting to the point where we really needed to split that off. Um, so we thought, okay, who can we find for... who? And, and also, you know, the, the, the pay that a monitor engineer gets ranges quite a lot depending on the budget, depending on the size of the tour. So we were trying to figure out what we could afford and... And we just remembered this guy on this tour that we did who was doing fucking everything. <laughs> and he didn't complain. He did a good job on the mix. Uh, you know, and that, that's, how, that's how people get hired. You, know, right, it you, was, you get seen doing a good yeah. job. It's funny. In re- I didn't realize you hadn't mixed that much stuff. Until I, hadn't mixed, like, I had mixed like one rock band really yeah, before that. It, and also, if it weren't for that date in Saskatoon, I think we, you know, because on that tour, you had no time to set up and so yeah. on. And finally, on that one gig in Saskatoon, you had a decent board and time to set up yeah and it was a, it was a great mix and we're like oh he can mix yeah. <laughs> so i think so Fo- we, we we called him up or e- mick emailed you or something from europe and hey do you want to go mick, on I think mick, yeah, yeah i think it was an email i remember because i was uh leaving uh after we had done that short thing i had done some other stuff with a few other bands that just kind of started along and uh i was flying into my next tour with uh the same band that was opening for you guys mm-hmm. uh so i was going back to join up with them and i was like ah oh, man i don't know i don't want to do this again uh i had like driving. a pretty yeah i was like too much driving I had a pretty rough time at it and uh and then on that that trip uh mick emailed me and i was like yes is this everything's gonna be okay <laughs> kind of, garen's kind of the opposite story of chris who is kind of off and on with us he went from never doing any road work and we needed a guy back then to do merch. So Mick called him up out of the blue and said, I'm out on tour with this band. Didn't say who it was. Didn't say what the tour was or anything. Like, can you do the next three, three months or two months worth of work? And he agreed to it, kind of sight unseen, and showed up in Milwaukee at Summerfest to be with us on a bus in like the most cushy environment. So he went from like zero to fairly cushy yeah. touring. Like he didn't put, pay his dues like... Every, most people in this and, business. But in all done. fairness, he thought he was going to a van. Oh, yeah. He, I'm not saying he was like... He no, wasn't, you remember he sh- at, the, at the airport, he's like, he, was, he didn't realize the bus was there. He was, was like, there. oh, whoa. <laughs> when, to be honest, most people pay more dues than I did. I, I still oh, didn't yeah. pay that. I, what know, is this? This is a very weird thing. People have an obsession with paying dues. Like, you could theoretically pay dues for eternity. So oh, I don't care you whether you paying. Like, yeah, I'm not interested in paying dues. No, no I don't. I don't want to pay them myself. But if Chris didn't pay them, I like to make fun of him. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, let's learn a little bit about Garen. Garen, so you, you where are you where are you from? 
Give us a little bit of background. I mean, we know. Yeah, yeah, give, no, of course. Give, give our audience a little bit of background. Uh, what golf course were you born on? <laughs> I was born on the... No, I don't know. Um, uh, I was born in Oklahoma. I spent most of my time growing up in Lake Havasu City, Arizona, which is where my family still lives. My folks live there. My grandparents live there. Uh, I went to college down in San Diego and stayed there for a while. Tried living here in L.A. for like 10 months and gave that up, moved back down to San Diego. Why'd you give give LA up? uh, I can't do it here. (laughs) I just can't. Uh, And then now I live in Nashville, Tennessee. By live in Nashville, you mean you spend a week or two here, there? You know, it it was that way for most of this year, but like I said, I'm actually in like an extended break off, and I've been off for like a month or two. So you guys are going to go play golf tomorrow. Yeah, you, we are. you are a very good golfer. Uh, very good is subjective, I don't mean but I'm good. But I mean, yeah, like I play your average person, you, you would beat every every average person. Let's put it this way: his best score is one under. Yeah, for any golfers, that was, that's not easy to do. That was a while ago. So why is that? You mean you grew up in like? So was, yeah, my parents actually, uh, when we moved to Arizona, they opened up a franchise of a retail, a golf retail store. So okay. they like sell clubs and apparel and things like that. So I grew up around the sport. I uh, spent a lot of time playing as a kid, and then played in competition through high school. Uh, considered trying to pursue it after that, but I realized it just wasn't something I wanted to do. You were saying off-air that your dream is to play with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I would love to. I would love to beat a 2.8 handicap. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he says he is? That's what he says he is. As a 75-year-old man, which is a very difficult thing to do. He He says he's a 2.8. Which is, is better than I've ever been. There's no arena Fake of news. life that he doesn't allow lying to enter and have invade. Is funny. Have you seen that picture of him playing tennis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no. There's no fucking way. He's a two point eight. It's very like uh, Kim Jong Il. He was. He did he shoot an eighteen? Yeah, that's. What I think the, he claims that he shot an eighteen on a on an eighteen hole golf course. So eighteen holes in one in a row. <laughs> yeah, but that was a par seventy two golf course. <laughs> you know what's crazy? <laughs> but you know what's so crazy about that is that he. Didn't think to like add in like one mistake to make it seem possible. He's just like it's so divine. Wait, well, no, that God, God doesn't make a mistake. No, I'm saying he could be like, and then I fucking I bogeyed on the 18, so I got a 19 or whatever it was, you know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Garen, also, we were in um, Salton Sea driving back from Phoenix, yeah, a few weeks ago, and we're driving along, and there's millions of palm trees out there where they have palm tree farms, and it turns out your family is like the Don Corleone of, <laughs> of palm trees. Your uncle, tell us uh, about that a bit. Yeah, my, my uncle is fantastic. He's a great person. And he, as far as my understanding goes, he patented a way to put, cut a palm tree um, back a long time ago that is it's the best looking palm tree you can buy. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he uh, built a business around... Uh, selling palm trees so whenever you see a palm tree that looks really really nice it's probably my uncle's yeah you were saying i mean like driving down las vegas boulevard yeah i think i'm pretty sure every single palm tree like down the las vegas strip is his like all those ones that are planted along that's pretty impressive 
Yeah. So, and what, he also has date he, uh, uh, date farm or date palm trees as well? I think he has a lot of things that he does. But yeah, he owns a Shield State Garden in Palm Desert, which has great date shakes. Oh, yeah. You said it was like one of the original date shake places. Yeah, they, I think they invented the date shake at Shields. <laughs> you know, when you guys start talking about date shakes, I've never heard the term before in my life. I couldn't figure out what you were talking about. Does it sound is like that, an event? Is that like a thing? It sounds like an event is that you a, do? a West Coast thing? After or dinner, going to date shake? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shake, it, shake it out with your date. Um, <laughs> but uh, all these date date palms along the ten freeway from between Arizona and California, yeah. it's all these places you can get. It's like a milkshake made with dates. Yeah. The, yeah, and it's fantastic. I had one. It was, it's pretty good. I mean, I get the I get the buzz now. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, all right. Should oh, we- I got one more thing to talk with Garen about because when we go on tour. We have these pelican cases, which are these super heavy-duty cases that you can th- kick and throw and put the underwater, like military-level yeah. cases. And Garen carries an entire case filled with just coffee paraphernalia. That's true. And no one hates him because of it. We give him a, give him a lot of shit for it. But you, I mean, what do you carry in there, like a, an Aeropress? Yeah, or- I, an Aero, I usually take an Aeropress and a V60. Um, and a kettle. And a kettle. And a hand and grinder. Yeah, grinder and a couple, couple mugs and some filters. <laughs> that's well, why, that's why when we were talking about snobs. What were, what were we talking about on the last episode? Oh, yeah, wine snobs. Wine, you were making yeah, fun wine of snobs. snobs. Well, yeah, Garen is definitely with uh, with the rest of us for the most part a coffee snob. I, I have to clarify. <laughs> I mean, I am a coffee snob. I really enjoy good coffee, but I also don't care about just having like a shit cup at a Denny's or something like that. I'll do that anytime. Right, yeah, when you're with uh, Jeff, when you guys get into a room together, Jeff, who's been oh, on the yeah. road with us recently doing photography, he's, he's also a coffee snob. He was a barista. He is a um, coffee snob. Yeah, he was yeah. sending me um, he was sending me <laughs> those water packets that you put in your water. He was like, you should get these water packets, put them in your water. Put you start, water you get, in your you, water? You get distilled water, and then you put these mineral packets oh, that's in the right. distilled water yeah. to what get it, your, uh, like, so you got to pay a bunch of money. That's why I was water. excited when Garen was coming I out here. Get, I didn't get the water packets. <laughs> to come out and uh, work in L.A. for a couple of days with us because I just signed up for this coffee delivery service here in L.A. And it's like the most... That's the most L.A. thing. It's the most L.A. List. hipster thing you could do. But I'm excited to try. I haven't tried it yet. I'll let you know the next week or two how it turns out. But basically the guy... Roast to order the day before they deliver it to your house. And Are you a customer or a client? I hopefully both. <laughs> no, I mean it's like you, when when people describe you as being a client for something, which you oh you, they yeah. try to sophistic, you know, they try to fucking make it. Yeah, I'm taking new clients for my coffees. That's what, he, that's what I had been going to the website because I read about this place and I was looking for somewhere to buy coffee and just try it out. It's not expensive. It's like normal price of coffee. Mm. And for three or four weeks, he wasn't accepting new clients. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally saw an opening, got my name on the list, sent my uh, headshot over. Well, what's so special about this coffee? You well, said, no, nothing. It's just it's like it's wasn't roasted. He rated, wasn't he rated the best in Los Angeles? Yeah, LA Weekly rated the best coffee in Los Angeles. Best roaster. Customer and a client. Like, when do you become a client? As you're a customer, customer at Walmart. You That's are a yeah, client yeah. at. If I was a therapist, I would I say know. I had customers. <laughs> Some other fancy place churning out these yeah. customers at my therapy. Oh, sorry, you got to leave. I got a new customer coming in. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about music. Uh, we'll start with the new Taylor Swift album because Garen was all about Taylor Swift. Yeah, but I have I haven't listened to the new album. 
All right. What is the new album called again? Why is everyone picking on me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the joke is that Garen really did like Taylor Swift for a long time at one point, and when the new album came out in her first single, which was uh, Look What You Made Me Do, everyone texted on the group chat with, you know, we've got a group chat with the band and everyone who's been on our crew in uh, in the past and currently. We texted Garen and said, dude, what happened between you and Taylor Swift? And I let him know we broke up. It's done. (laughs) Moving on to music. uh, (laughs) Diplo talks (laughs) shit about Taylor Swift or something like that, and there was just this army of people on Twitter, like, you know, Taylor Swift fans just attacking him. Oh, yeah. That's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous territory. So let's talk about uh, this guy, Blake Mills, who Danny introduced me to, but then you also use in our, when you're flashing a PA. Yeah. So I guess tell us briefly what flashing a PA is, and then we can talk about that, uh, Blake Mills. Sure. Um, Yeah. So flashing a PA, when you're you're mixing front of house, you every day you you spend a good amount of time just listening to what's happening uh in the room before there's people in there so you can uh tweak and change whatever parameters you need to change to to make it sound like your show um so one of the the guys i listen to is uh, blake mills i listen to a couple other people as well but and i think that guy's fantastic uh and his his records sound incredible. He actually produced uh, one of my favorite records right now, which is the uh, Alabama Shake Sound and Color. I think he had a huge hand in. Oh, he produced. Yeah. I didn't really. I think yeah. I'm pretty sure he's one of the producers. Yeah, if on you that. go, I mean, I I knew he produced that, but then I looked up his discography, and he's just on everything, either yeah. as a player or you know co-writer on something. Like his the list of stuff he's involved with is just enormous. So what is it about that track or? What is, the tr- that, what is the track that you guys... Uh, if I'm Unworthy. Yeah, If I'm Unworthy. And uh, for me, it it starts with just guitar. It's just a guitar that kind of plays this looping, like hypnotic sort of thing for a little while. And so it's just guitar and then a vocal, come, his vocal comes in and it's so crisp and clean. And I've listened to that a, a ton and I know what that sounds like. And that's the biggest thing, like when you're tuning a PA is it's not necessarily all about the quality of the song that you're listening to, but it's, it's how well you know what's happening, yeah, you know, and what right. it's supposed to sound like, what it sounds like through a real true system. Um, and so that, that Blake Mills song, I think is just, an, it's a very easy thing for me to pick out a couple of qualities with the, the PA. Yeah, so you know what the song should sound like, yeah. having listened to it across a thousand different yeah. systems. And then you know what to tweak in the EQ mm-hmm. or anything on the speakers. So, I mean, so Mick uses... Uh, it's uh, ACDC back in black yeah, specifically kind of for one. the kick drum, yeah. right? Like he wants to hear how the kick drum and the bass response of the yeah. room is with that song. The low mids and stuff. So it's quite funny when you're on tour for four, five, six months, you hear ACDC back in yeah. black three or four times a day for five or six months. Yeah, I usually use use like four, like four or five songs. I always do the same order and use the like use each song to pick out kind of what I'm listening for in it. And Mick does the same thing, but Back in Black is his go-to. He'll listen to that like three times before he does anything else. <laughs> that Blake Mills song, though, that just there's something about it has it feels like old school dynamics in terms of the growth of it, just even mm. volume wise. Like, yeah, it's I mean, weird. Today's music, you press play, the verses is loud. The chorus is loud. The bridges are loud. And it doesn't feel like you go anywhere. And it's weird that it's it's so exciting that it actually loses excitement. Whereas this Blake Mills track, to me, just feels so naturally exciting because there's real dynamics in the, yeah. in the sound. 
Yeah, it's a bit like, and also there's that, that payoff, you know, at the end of it. It's a bit like the, um, uh, Bill Werther's Use Me. Mm-hmm. You know when he saves the, that rhythmic hand clap thing just for the very end of the song? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he doesn't repeat it. It's like he doesn't try to milk it, you know. He just saves that big payoff for the end. Yeah, well, Blake you, Mills. You, you saw Blake Mills, didn't you? Haven't you, haven't you yeah, seen Yeah, I went with uh, Topher Gerbet, Chris Gerber in Phoenix to see him at Crescent in a, in a small venue. I think probably the best show I'd seen that year. It was just him and two, a drummer and a bass player, right? No, a keyboard player. Shit, maybe maybe a switch. He's a young guy too, right? He's hmm? he's young too, right? He's a young. Yeah, he's youngish. Yeah, he's best guitar sounds I've heard. He's good live. for his age. <laughs> yeah, he's good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his uh, all of his sounds he gets on his records. He he gets them live. You know, yeah. all of his sounds are excellent. I think those are my those are my favorite artists to to l- listen to records and to see them live. Like everyone I can think of, uh, like Chris Stapleton is the same way for me as as well as the album. I, I can tell he's amazing. I don't think his records have they're not organic as uh, like Blake Mills are for me. They sound Nashville. The, they sound like the well, pinnacle I mean, yeah, of he, Nashville he, he production. Is, yeah, you know, he is like you know? the Nashville dude, but. Yeah. Um, I still like I I really enjoy listening to his album just because mm. I can see it represented when he plays. Oh yeah, and there, yeah, that's interesting that he produced the Alabama Shakes album because that's a really really nice organic sounding album. Yeah, kind of goes along with with what Blake Mills does for himself too. What I would like to do on our album is not that because now we have synths. So <laughs> yeah, but there's a for way. Those even of you with looking synths. for organic sounds, we're you, you're looking in the wrong place. Yeah, but it's semi-organic because <laughs> as we're finding with some of these old vintage synths that we've stole from our dad yeah. <laughs> or that you've bought one or two of these uh, new new analog ones, there is there is something magical in those, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the, particularly that we'll talk about in gear section, but that ARP Odyssey, just magical sitting in front of that. I think the Roland Jupiter 8 is the most magical one we have up there. It's got all the colors to make yeah. it magical. Um, what else? Uh, Music-wise, I just wanted to talk about, I, mean, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to and recommend to check it out, this new John Coltrane documentary on Netflix. And it just reminded me of him because, you know, you forget about someone in, in your in your music collection and just don't listen to them for a while. So you go back and listen to Love Supreme. I don't know if you've ever listened to that album. Probably played on the bus a couple of times. It's a little cr- crazy to play on the bus. It's not like very backgroundy, <laughs> chill music. But uh, I guess apparently he was g- going to call it Allah Supreme. Mm-hmm. But even back then he got kickback probably from the label or probably from the marketing department. Like, eh. Had he Love Supreme is a better title. So even if yeah, no, I don't. I don't think he is. Uh, I don't think he was Muslim. He just, you know, it was. It's a pretty non-denominational talking about. Uh, it's a devotional album, mm-hmm. so he called it Love Supreme, obviously, and there's that chant in it. But if if any, anyone hasn't listened to that album, just go check it out. It's one of the great all-time jazz. John Coltrane, albums. the the. Uh, I mean, we we listened to so much jazz, especially Johnny and I. Um, before we even started the band Congos, we were doing jazz at Arizona State University, and that was kind of our world for a while. And um, this was like before YouTube <laughs> as well. So when when YouTube came around, we're dating ourselves here. Um, <laughs> we found all these clips of John Coltrane, and there's one. I forget which festival it was. It's a black oh, yeah. and white video. We'll find the, the the clip of them doing a live performance, the John Coltrane Quartet. And the drummer was a guy called Alvin Jones, also one of my favorite. 
and uh, he and John Coltrane. It was outdoors and it was cold and it was nighttime, and they were just playing so hard and they were so into it that literally they were steaming you can see steam just piping <laughs> off of their bodies <laughs> it's one of the coolest videos uh that you'll see it, one of the legends about john coltrane and why he was he's such a crazy phenomenon in the world of jazz is he'd be playing these long sets as, as they often are in jazz clubs and in between sets so he'd do like 45 minutes on 20 minutes off 45 on just the whole night he would go back to his dressing room and just practice like he was just one of these, uh, you know, insane people that cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> no, he was on heroin. Well, no, he's bo- it was both. Uh, he was. I don't know if he did cocaine. I mean, I could be wrong, but he was m- more heroin, and he kicked it we'll, cold turkey. We'll watch yeah, this documentary and find yeah. out. Anyway, he's just one of those crazy guys that reminds you that you are not worthy <laughs> to call yourself or pretend that you're a musician. Um, so I guess let's move on to the music business. Every week we talk about yeah. some aspect of the music business and for this week with Garen because about 30 to 40 times a week this comes up when we're on tour. We're going to talk about frequent flyer status Ooh. with airlines. Well, because Garen is very, very close to the top tier yeah, status. Yeah, I'll be getting Where are you the at top right tier now? status. Well, let me, hold on, let me pull out my app. I'll give you some exact numbers here. <laughs> this, and this is how every conversation actually goes. <laughs> Three or four times you walk into a dressing room a week, someone's going, I'm about 88,000 miles now. I need 12,000, but that flight to Cleveland's going to get me there. <laughs> yeah. And it's a just it's ridiculous. But the, the reason it's important for us on tour to get this status is... Number one, first and foremost, we fly with about 21, 22 yeah. pieces of gear. And 14 or 15 of them are heavy, like yeah, overweight, zip, 60 we're pounds. At, we're at nearly 15 or 16 now that are heavy. <laughs> so if you do the math and figure out how much that would cost you on American Airlines, for instance. Well, I can tell you because I, oh, yeah. I remember doing a show where it was back when Mick was the only one that had it. And he wasn't there for it, and it was just me and you guys, and I think Mo and Chris. So what did were it come there. to? I think we ended up for the one trip, we ended up spending like th- over three thousand dollars total in baggage fees. Yeah. Right, and, and that was that was one trip, and we yeah. were already we were platinum. So yeah, yeah we, you guys were platinum at that. So, so. it would have been three thousand dollars each way. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's when you basically when you get up to the higher tiers, you get three free bags or whatever you know you get these perks that are nice perks but for us it actually ends up saving us literally thousands of dollars it's really fun to talk about (laughs) yeah explain so explain to us where you're at right now and what the benefits are of reaching this next level of godliness this podcast is brought to you by american airlines (laughs) because they hooked us all up with executive platinum uh i'm currently (laughs) so you have to get qualifying dollars and (laughs) miles I'm currently at $11,684 of 12000 so I have just a little over 300 left. And then I'm at 94,022 miles of 100,000 miles. So you're just about there. So these next yeah. couple of flights that you're doing for Vince Staples? Um, uh, no, yeah. it's just vacation. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go to San but Diego. So, hang I mean, out the thing is, what uh, several, uh, several years, either us or Mick has, I mean, Mick has flown. Twice to Australia. Uh, this goes, year. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, twice simply to get miles. Yeah. So he's, last year he flew Phoenix, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Sydney, Sydney, Melbourne, Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Phoenix in two and a half days just to get those miles and points and whatever he acquired. He stopped in Sydney and to go have Sichuan food. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Sichuan food. <laughs> but, and, and, and as crazy as that is, it's totally worth it. 
Yeah. And that concludes our... Well, I was just going to say, what, what are the other perks that... Like, why is it so important to get to oh, a second Well, the first-class lounges, obviously. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. get a full, you get a full meal and free drink and all sorts of fun things. Yeah, it's, fun, get- it's funny when Mick takes advantage of it on the plane. Like, he's got executive platinum, and when even if he's not sitting in first class, he'll be in the back of the plane. He'll make sure he takes advantage of it. He'll ask the, the um, flight attendant for his cheese snack and his free beverage. <laughs> Dude, I, that will be me <laughs> next year. Yeah. I order a gin at six on a six, like an overnight six in the morning flight yeah. that I don't drink just because I'm going to get every but single flight attendant. I feel it. like the flight attendants are always on to me because whenever I've tried to get a little mini drink and not, they, they open, open it. it. Then they, they look, they make eye contact and you they need open to order it, it with a mixer or something because then they know that you want to mix it yourself no, but and then you don't open it. Oh yeah, that's pretty clever. They are they the they are supposed to recognize you and your executive platinum because yeah, because a bunch of us got executive platinum this walk, yeah. year, <laughs> and they look at the manifest. So even if you're not in first class, they go down when they're doing drinks. And this has happened to me a few times. I felt super special. We were flying coach, but um, they came around, you know, with the drinks and the food and stuff like that. And they looked at me and they go. Oh, Mr. Congos, would you like a snack or a drink? <laughs> would you like it? It's a cheese platter snack. Would you like it's, your cheese no, platter No, there's, there's options. One of them would is you like pre-packaged. Mr. Congos? <laughs> One that of them is pre-packaged great. hummus, which is not good. Um, but I like to look over. I was flying next to Gerbet, Chris, our guitar tech. And uh, I looked over and I said, Chris, would you like a snack? And I gave, I gave him mine. And he felt real special. Yeah. That our generosity knows no bounds. <laughs> so anyway, that's something we talk about constantly because it is important and it's also little perks that keep it uh, fun while you're traveling. Um, Garen, what's the worst job on tour? The, like, worst, the worst job I've had or just no, in like, general? No, no. What, like wh- You personally, which job do you hate? Like if we said, um, Garen, you're doing merch tomorrow for the rest of the tour or you're doing uh, Well, you could do whatever. that and then you probably wouldn't sell any merch because I don't deal with people very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, since you've done every job, which yeah. ones did you just, you're like, fuck this, I hate this? Uh, let's see. Uh, one tour I did, I was working as an assistant tour manager it was for like an arena sized tour. And so my job was basically comprised of ordering food <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> uh, dealing with like after show food. And, you know, but uh, actually, one part of that job I did really enjoy was I got to put tape down everywhere. Literally everywhere in the entire arena, oh, you mean just to like mark tape out? and mark, with, which that was kind of fun. But everything else about that. So was, what you, I mean, so that tape thing. What you mean is like arrows, arrows, yeah, and yeah. lines like to make tape sure everyone to tell knows you where you're going. Yeah, um, which I guess I enjoyed that part of it. Uh, and that seems silly, but it's an important thing because every night you're in a different arena and you're looking for you're looking for. Or it just makes it, it much be, easier. Yeah. So it looks like these silly little signs like bathroom. Bus, but and you know where it is, but you know, yeah. After thirty days, it really helps. I think that I would probably honestly say I haven't really had a, other than that that time that I was doing everything. There hasn't been a, a single job on tour that I don't really enjoy. I I just enjoy touring. I guess you'd say. What's What's your favorite job on tour? Monitors. I I love mixing monitors for you guys. Why? What? Oh, <laughs> you your job is secure, Garen. <laughs> yeah, I'm also really good at sucking up. <laughs> Thought that was going in a different direction. So, would you rather mix monitors in front of house? 
Uh, probably depend on the artist, but yeah, for the most part, I'd probably rather be at monitors. I, I like the the relationship between a monitor engineer and the band mm-hmm. better than I do the relationship between the front of house engineer and the audience. Right. <laughs> yeah, because that's, well, yeah. that's a combative relationship, yeah. basically. You, tell, tell us about our monitor mixes. You've, I'm sure you've got opinions that you haven't you haven't expressed properly about the oh, way man, we listen to our your mixes, mixes are like so crazy different. Each one of you. I don't think I've ever mixed a band that doesn't have like at least some similarities, which is funny because I, you would expect that with you guys being brothers, that you'd have at least some sort of similar thing that you're listening for. But each individually is is so very different. We're it's, almost sitting in here. So go through, what, is, what does Danny's mix sound like? Uh, Danny's mix is... Uh, it's a lot of taking things away. So it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, not much drums because he's kind of right near the drums. And he, Danny often uh, doesn't wear one ear, which is natural so that he can hear his amps. Um, so it's mostly just his guitar and vocal. And uh, then it's balancing Dylan, your, your vocal with his a lot of the times because he likes it, your vocal in the center and like just right below his. Um, he sings because he sings a lot of the harmonies. All yeah. right, what about me? What's, what um, am I going to learn about myself? <laughs> yours is, uh, uh, let's see. What would I say? It's it's a challenge. <laughs> I actually, when I first started working for you guys, I, I struggled with your mix the most, trying to figure out what to do because you have a very unique voice and like how you sing is very different. So we tried a ton of different like things from like compressing your vocal a lot more to just not compressing it at all, throwing different reverbs on. And I think this like this last year is finally like I really like your mix now. And I actually probably listen to your mix more than most people's because I have to make more changes too. But um, <laughs> but yeah, yours was always just fighting a, a vocal and what to do with it. I think part of that is actually a language barrier that you know most of the other guys in the band are a lot more technically knowledgeable than I am. So when and even I'm probably more technically technically knowledgeable than a lot of other bands, but trying to describe what you want to yeah. a monitor engineer is very difficult if you don't speak the same language because it's like trying to it's like listening to someone um, tell you what they want out of a mix in a studio, like a label exec who you know they don't know anything. And yeah, they're like, want, can you add more, more blue? When they're like, can you add more music this. to this song? And you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. So I think that was, that's part of the difficulty is, yeah. is trying to explain to a monitor engineer what exactly you want out of a mix. You can't just say, can you add more? Of, you know that yeah. sound that goes. Nyo, nyo, nyo. You have to use language that is, yeah. uh, you know, very specific. So yeah, that's Danny's vocal. Nyo, nyo, nyo. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Before we move on to Jesse and Joey, what was Logan saying about? He had someone come in and he's an editor a guy that's been editing this uh, uh, reality <laughs> show for us and the editor is someone who knows the story he asked him yeah Lo- uh, Logan uh, he's a camera guy editor video person we work with quite a lot uh, he was editing a project and the producer mm. came in and asked him if he could move the camera <laughs> on an edit as in to off to the fact <laughs> like off axis yeah, yeah. to as another though, angle as though it was virtual reality he said can you I, I don't even know what was going through his head maybe he thought the only thing I can think of is that he thought they had shot it twice at different angles but I was like so maybe that's what he meant and Logan said no he literally wanted <laughs> Logan like, to move maybe he's from the future where they have that's, yeah like multi-dimensional cameras and you just choose it off to the fact like oh we should have shot that close up right yeah 
<laughs> That's pretty good. I'm always what, okay. So what about uh, my mix, uh, Johnny? You uh, you probably have the most balanced mix of everybody. It's a little keyboard Hot. heavy, obviously, because you're playing keyboards. Um, but you have like the most drums. Like uh, there's a lot more. I feel like there's a lot more clarity across the whole thing. It's like way more even because you're not having to deal with something like guitars, right? You know, which you need to feel. Oh, you leave, you leave or, both ears in too. Yeah, most of the time I yeah. keep both my ears in. Yeah. The struggle for me is all my sounds change so much song to song yeah. and there's no physical feedback. Like when you play a guitar in front of an amp, you still feel a bit of yeah. the amp. Like mine's all in the digital world, so I don't feel anything. So that's the struggle yeah. for me. Uh, and then Jesse, I'd, as a monitor engineer, I'd probably say you're the the craziest person to mix because there's no other band really that has a, a drummer be also one of the lead singers. It's very yeah. rare, at least. There's a couple of them out there, obviously. But Go on. So... <laughs> Anderson Pack, <laughs> um, your your vocal is has to be so loud, and you have such a huge range in your vocal too, from being super quiet, uh, like when you sing down low to where you, it's your song and you're singing like quite loud. Um, so dealing with the compression on your vocal, uh, as well as having basically no drums in the mix because your vocal has to be so present just yeah. so weird as a drummer I, I mixed one other drummer that i would not listen to his mix during a show because his drums were so freaking loud and yeah. that's how most drummers are but <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> loud kind of, uh, yeah. it's just of, loud across the board it's a little bit of a circle jerk there yeah <laughs> well this <laughs> they just want to hear their fills but for i mean because i sing so much that you got to think that vocal mic is sitting right above my drum yeah, kit so yeah, all the drums that. are filtering into it uh and also you know i'm I'm between the bass amp and the guitar amp, so I'm feeling all that on stage. Um, basically, I'm defending myself here yeah. <laughs> as to why I have an awkward mix. No, I mean, I, I agree with it. It's just This weird. leads perfectly into uh, kind of our member berry section, which is our reminiscing about the past, and it can be on any subject, but um, we'll kind of continue on the monitor engineering thing when we played Life is Beautiful Festival, and to set mm. this up, that was the first show of our Egomaniac tour, really, where we were First one. First show, and we had this great headlining slot on one of the small stages in Las Vegas, and we're playing to probably 10,000 people or so. I don't know, maybe it was a little Somewhere less, but a little it was, less it was a seven, packed yeah. crowd, and... Uh, that was one of the biggest fuck-ups we've ever had on, on tour. Yeah. And maybe you can explain to us sure, I can take, how, what the feeling was. I can take <laughs> the majority of the blame. I won't take all of it. Uh, but basically, there's one song uh, that the guys play, I Don't Mind, where we the Danny and Dylan switch instruments. So Danny is playing bass and Dylan is playing guitar. So I had set up a different scene on the console. Most of the time, I just mix... I just, I don't, you, uh, well, layman's terms here. You can, uh, as an engineer, you can have a different, basically a different setting for every single song. Uh, a lot of people do that to change effects and all sorts of different things. And so the only time I really need to do that is for that one song because right. they switch instruments, which means that everything changes. Um, and so I had programmed all that in, and during rehearsals, for that tour we never ran that song and what ended up happening is that there was a little terrible uh little check mark clicked on the console that uh <laughs> that changed all of my routing uh so like like the vocal mics were going into like 
another channel on the console and the tracks were going somewhere else. And uh, basically what happened was I hit the button for the song and uh, there's this big pop and all of a sudden nobody has any vocals and no tracks are there. There's no click track. There's nothing. But out front, everything's the same. Like it didn't change for Mick out front. So the audience thinks that nothing's going wrong. But And they're yelling at us like, just play, play the song. <laughs> yeah, from our perspective, that was one of the most uncomfortable moments yeah. on stage ever, at least for me, is because you've got people, it's, it's such a cliche, you've got people in the audience shouting at you, play Freebird, play a drum solo, accordion solo. And we were there for a good six to seven minutes because we've got really great footage of this. Um, and we, you, yeah. can, you can see the... You guys did do a good job of, of calling up Mo, and you guys can play a song... Yeah, without we, anything, without really even needing monitors, uh, and you guys went to that, uh, but it was still awkward. <laughs> it's proof of the relativity of time because it felt like a fucking eternity. Yeah. Up I've, there. You know, I've had I've had one other time in my career where something like that happened, and I was with Ratatat in Paris. We were headlining Pitchfork Music Festival in Paris, and um, oh, uh, hang on, somebody's at the front door. <laughs> Hold that thought, G. Okay. Uh, we are back. That was Mo Gordon at the front door interrupting our very important podcast. So <laughs> Mo will be on our next podcast and we're going to reprimand him. Sorry, carry on with your story, G. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so yeah, I was saying there's only one other time that I've had that kind of catastrophic uh, failure happen on a stage. And I was, I was with Ratatat and we were in Paris at the Pitchfork Music Festival headlining. And so it's a huge show and uh during the intro during our intro when the band's about to walk out on stage uh i hear these like like these sizzly kind of popping sounds and it sounds like electrical things happening i'm like something electrical is happening i don't know what um and then they're on stage they get out on stage and he goes to start playing the keyboard and what, what what i think had happened was like a transformer had like sent like a huge amount of voltage down because we're in Europe. So we are running on, we had transformers to run on us power because right. um, they have different power stuff over there. So, uh, one of those transformers had sent like a ton of voltage down and fried the keyboard, which is the main, one of the main instruments for them. Um, it had also somehow fried one pedal on the base pedal board, um, during the intro. And so we're trying to figure out how to fix all these things. And we had a spare keyboard, but the, uh, the tech had not loaded any of the sounds into that keyboard. So it was basically useless. Um, and so we had no keyboard and like, basically we ended up taking the bass straight into the, the cab. But I remembered it being like a catastrophic failure. I was like, this is awful. He played all the keyboard parts on guitar, uh, he's he's an incredible musician, Mike is, and so he played everything on gu- the guitar, but it just sounded weird, and I thought it was awful, and the whole thing's on video. So I went back and watched it when I got back to the States, and I was like, man, how bad was this? Uh, and you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was from the audience perspective. You d- it didn't feel n- yeah. nearly as terrible as it did on stage. Yeah, there's just something about that on stage, and I mean, we'll, you'll see it in this this docu series we're working on. That's a big uh, a part of one of the episodes. But there's just this ridiculous shot of me, like just staring blankly into space, yeah. going like because I couldn't. I just froze. I was like, I don't know what the fuck to do. 
that like nothing was working that night. It's, it's weird how kind of uh, it was also just you know the the kickoff to the ego maniac yeah. tour yeah. <laughs> to set the tone for the whole year. Very deflating. So yeah. Jesse, you were saying you have this memory. And oh, I'm, I'm remember, yeah. remembering it now. A lot of, we have a lot of these similar memories in the Austin Lounge. Austin Lounge. <laughs> yeah. Well, What's his name? Uh, Jason, Jason, Jason from the American Airlines. So one of the perks of the Miles status that we discussed earlier is that you get, well, depending on the airline that you're with, you can get into the VIP lounges where they have free drinks and food and whatever. And so we've, we've done a lot of gigs in Austin. We're always flying in and out of that airport. And one t- one year we did Austin City Limits, so it was two weeks in a row we were in that airport. And the guy, the bartender at this lounge, got to know us, and he was a cool guy. And he like basically loaded us up on free drinks, so we would always fly in and out of Austin, hammered. Um, <laughs> so following that trend, we we were flying out of Austin to London for some promo last year, and uh, Garen took you took advantage of the free drink situation. I did. Sure did. <laughs> I had and we three. had a 10-hour flight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you were pretty happy. You were like, you were pretty happy for about 30 minutes of that flight, and then you were passed the fuck out. Yep, I slipped the whole so, way. 10-hour flight, we get into London. I don't even know what time of the day it was. It was an overnight flight, so you're completely disoriented. We're in the customs line. And when you're traveling with gear and you're working, you have to you know, have special paperwork to get, to get in and out of a country, usually. Mick, our... Uh, tour manager had handed out to everybody all the paperwork that they needed so that they could go through the line and in, we're in Austin in Austin yeah. yeah and so we're in London Garen's like fuck I don't know where's my paperwork Mick didn't give it to me he didn't <laughs> give it to me He, you were you were convinced and Mick's like I fucking did give it to you yeah, he's, he kept saying he's like I gave it to you man and I was like I don't think you did and so I was asking does everybody else have theirs and everyone's like yeah we all have ours I was like Mick, I think you missed me. And I, I was like giving him some shit for it. And uh, we finally like got up to the line and they ended up calling us all through at the same time. So I didn't even need it, but because uh, everybody had the whole copy. Um, but I was I was 100 percent convinced that Mick didn't give it to me. Um, and then two days later, uh, I was like doing some stuff i don't know getting something out of my backpack and i found it like in the bottom of my backpack I don't, there's I, nothing mick likes more <laughs> than when he knows he's right and you particularly it's like you and him yeah i don't know why you two like have this thing i've noticed it from a distance because like, we both always you both always think you're that, you know? both <laughs> always think you're right you almost lost your voice there garen you're getting I emotional did. about this but I just love that look in Mick's eye when he sees Garen's like fighting him on something. He's like, "No, Mick, I think it's uh, you know, it should be going to Channel Seven. He's like, and he knows it's not yeah. right, I, and he just lets you kind of like string yourself 90, out there. Ninety-five percent of the time, that's how it goes, and then there's five percent of the time where I'm like, "No, I got this one. <laughs> I'm gonna win this one." <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about favorite gear item of the oh, week. Oh, I showed Mick a digital performer trick. I was very proud of that because Mick always knows everything, you know. Yeah, when you are, when you mix a know it all, but for good reason, because he pretty much does know it all, but once in a while you catch him and he just doesn't like it. You gotta, you know, sometimes you you have to be the exception to the the rule, you know, to prove that Mick knows it all. Once in a while he has to not know it, and that that proves it. Um, Oh, so we're on to favorite gear of the week. So we're, instead of boring you with more audio this week, uh, we're gonna do Garen's favorite piece of gear relating to. Go ahead. So, uh, over the last year or so, uh, <laughs> my roommate and I, we have 
enjoyed making cocktails for people, like having people over and making some nice drinks. Uh, and we discovered a huge part of that is the ice that you use. Uh, so I'm going to talk you guys through my my ice-making setup. Uh, basically, so just Not only is he a coffee snob, he's also a whiskey and ice ice snob now as well. He's not a, whis- yeah. he's not a whiskey snob. I no, you, that's, uh, I'll leave that to you oh, guys. Oh, just the ice snob. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I enjoy making super clear, clean ice. And should I do, like, the whole rundown on it? Probably just, not. Uh, just give us the basic principle about how you make a big <laughs> how you make one of those big uh, square ice cubes that's sure. perfectly see through. Well, I'll just I'll, okay. So the way to make clear ice, the the biggest key for it is how it freezes. So when an uh, when water freezes in a direction, so like if it freezes from the top down, um, that is what creates the clear ice because it pushes all the impurities and the air bubbles down to the bottom as it freezes. The way that you accomplish that is by freezing something inside of something that's insulated like a cooler. So if you use like an igloo cooler, take the top off of it, fill it with water, and then all sides are insulated except for the top. So it's only getting the cold air from the top. Um, So it'll freeze from the top down. Which makes it takes a long time to do. So it takes about two days to get a, a chunk of ice that's about two to three inches thick. And then so you so you do that. You're using like an, an actual. So I'm doing it at home. There's machines that do this that cost thousands of dollars and do it way better. But I'm doing it in an igloo cooler. And then you end up home. with a big rectangle, and you, you're yeah. cutting it or yeah, just breaking it. it randomly. No, so I cut it into cubes um, and do what that. What do you use to cut it? Uh, so I use a a. a you take the ice out of the cooler and then you leave it in the room for about 20 to 30 minutes and let it temper to the room. So it kind of just adjusts to it. Cause if you just try and start cutting it, it'll just like fragment off. Right. So you let it sit for like 20 or 30 minutes. And then I use a serrated knife and like start a cut. And once I'm just barely into the ice, then I hit the hand, the, the knife with a, a mallet and then it just slices right through it. You better not bring cut. this shit on the bus. No, I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> so at what point do you, you put Jack and Coke in it? Put yeah, the you Mountain put Dew in D. when? Yeah, then I then I drink Capri Sun. <laughs> we have our, our WhatsApp group. You sent us a picture of that, and the truth of the matter is, we were all actually very impressed and like, oh, that would be so nice in our fancy whiskeys. But uh, there were like thirty jokes at your expense oh, just, for, just for sending a picture of ice <laughs> well what we'll do is we'll throw up a couple pictures yeah, of ice because Garen pulled out his phone yesterday and he showed me um, another picture of his his famous ice and we'll throw up a picture there you can't even see it it's that clear it's very clear yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> it's very cool Let's uh, talk briefly about another piece of gear. We won't get into details because we actually talked about this a lot, but the PSM 1000s, which are the Sure. The Sure wireless packs. Yeah, so I mean, basically, let's talk about one little aspect that we've not talked about in terms of this monitoring and what we do with these wireless packs is uh, what's called a Q pack. Yeah, so um, my, as an engineer, as a monitor engineer in particular, it's a very, it's an odd place to be listening to things because I'm trying to listen to a bunch of other people's mixes so uh how do we explain this best uh basically you can tune in to listen to any one of our mixes yeah on your pack which is a wireless pack receiving the audio from the mixing console so there's so there's two things so there's a i always have a pack that can actually change to your frequency 
uh, to like the exact radio frequency that each band member is listening to, and I can listen to your pack, your packs that way. I also have my own frequency, which I can cue on the console um, what is being sent to that, and I can pop through mixes that way. So basically, um, it just allows you to be checking all four of us, and that's one of the most yeah. important things in a good monitor engineer kind of figures out the problem before you have to be yeah. waving on stage saying, the, hey, this is something going the wrong. The big thing on, on the biggest thing for me uh, is actually the, the ability to like matrix my uh, cue pack. What that means is I don't just listen to like Dylan's mix. While I'm listening to Dylan's mix, I also might need to be talking to Mo across stage. Right. And so, uh, or Mick at front of house or like the radios that we use, the, um, you know, like the walkie talkie radios. Right. That we use. I said walkie talkie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all the, the rest of the touring industry. Yeah, so like, it's like, I'm listening to all these things, uh, but I don't want you guys listening to those. And so I like have a pretty good matrix set up into my pack to listen to, um, all the things going on at that time. I guess to our listeners, this amount of detail may, you know, it's, it's a lot to take in, but I think, you know, what you can gather from it, and this is all stuff that we've learned as our touring has kind of gone from being in little bars to what we do now, is the amount of detail that these, it's a very skilled position, people who are touring crew, you know, they're not just pushing boxes. There's an amazing amount of detail that is required to make a show when you walk into a venue and you see the lights come up and you see the sound come up and it all goes well. That everything that's behind that we find particularly yeah. interesting you know obviously it's our our career in our world um but you know if you go next time you go to a show you might a little have a little idea of what the band members are going through what the engineers are going through all the detail that's involved in making that happen smoothly mm-hmm. i think people just, really don't uh know about that or appreciate it even one of i had a friend once come up to mo after we were doing uh, a few shows and Mo's stage manages for us, and uh, he also sings a couple songs with us occasionally. And I had a friend come up and go, "Man, you got like the greatest job in the world. You just like travel around the world with these guys, and then go up on stage for seven minutes, and then that's it. And then that's what he thought his job was, and he didn't realize that you know <laughs> the, the the work and skill and effort that goes into putting a concert together is yeah. it's all behind the yeah. scenes. Yeah. He's a special kind of moron, that guy. It's, <laughs> it's a, so it's, there's a kind of a good segue maybe into our what's it like being in a band with your brothers uh, section because we wanted to talk about the broader definition of that on the road. Yeah. The fact that, partic- I mean, a lot of crews are like this, but we've specifically tried to build our crew out of people that we can get along with yeah. and that I mean, everyone that's on the road knows that pretty much the most important thing is it doesn't matter how many microphones you know about like if we want to murder you at the end of three weeks or vice versa it's, i'm not getting hired again yeah, yeah. it's just not going to happen so that's a, a big aspect of being on the road is that there's this extended family that you, because you're literally spending more time than you spend with your wife or your parents or anybody yeah uh, it's interesting as like um for all the for all the other artists that I've worked for, this band has been an exception. Um, it's been different than most of the time I do that because I mean we've been working together for years now, and it's the same people. It's never changed, really. I mean we've added people, and you know we've had to fill in here and there, but 
for the most part, it's the exact same touring crew as we had three and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, which is a, is a huge, it's a very interesting dynamic, which you're right. That does mean I've spent more time with you guys than any of my, uh, you know, my friends or my best friends, people I would consider my best friends outside of this group. You have best spend, friends other than us. I have a lot of buddies. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but yeah, like we spend so much time together that the the ability to uh, like get a, not just get along, but to have fun and to like yeah. be friends outside yeah. of you know ninety percent of what we do is uh, not on stage. Nin- yeah, well, even more than around, that. it's like ninety seven percent of what we do is off the stage. That's all of our interactions are outside of that. So um, as well as things might go on the stage, like the other ninety seven percent of the time is just as if not more important than what happens on the stage. Yeah, I mean for for anyone who's interested in this lifestyle of, you know, thinks they want to tour or they want to either be in a band or in a crew, um, you know, and you're in a relationship, it's it's a bit of a hard sell. What's that? A, a relationship. <laughs> oh. You, you know, a relationship <laughs> a relationship outside of uh, the dudes on the bus. <laughs> um, you know, imagine go- trying to go to your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, you know, any relationship that you have and say, hey, I'm going to do this job where I'm going to be spending more time with a bunch of dudes than you uh, for, you know, eight months of the year. It's it's not an easy sell. I mean, it, there's a reason why people do this job because it's, it's amazing. You get amazing experiences. It's fun. It's rewarding and all that. But it comes at a price. Yeah. Definitely. Have you ever been on a tour where there was a particularly bad uh, interpersonal relationship on the bus? Yes, absolutely. And what what is that like? Uh, We've been lucky enough not to have that. Yeah. uh, I, uh, last year I was was working for someone and I I almost, I haven't, I don't think I've told you guys this. I almost got in a fist fight. I'm like the last person that's going to get in a fight. Um, And I remember thinking that I was about to get in like a full on fight. Uh, it actually, what ironically it happened on stage, uh, not off stage. Uh, but yeah, it was like, a, this, the, this guy that I did not get along with off stage. And then he made some mistakes on stage that, uh, he was yelling at someone that he had no right to be yelling at. And I was a stage manager. And so I kind of intervened and it didn't go very well. <laughs> I'm just trying so. <laughs> to imagine, like you picture that now and then you had to go sleep on a bus in a bunk like four feet well, away from him. Thankfully, so this is uh, the night before like a week long break. Uh, uh, okay. So it was perfect timing for it to happen because I didn't have to see him for the next week. But you just but. imagine like everywhere, like someone working a typical office cubicle job. Imagine the jerk in cubicle seven that you hate walking past his cubicle or her cubicle or whatever yeah. and then you have to go sleep next to them yeah and like eat for, dinner for, for three or four months and see them every single yeah, hour so we, I mean, we like knock wood we've been very lucky that we haven't had that and yeah. we I mean, it's engineered partially it's also luck was he the stage manager who showed up drunk no that wasn't a stage manager but it was on that tour and it was yeah that was another story where someone got fired we've been they, on tour with another band where they had just hired um a new crew member and a week in got in a fist fight with an actual fist fight with a long running crew member of theirs and immediately had to be sent home. <laughs> I was only out with them for a week and they got in a fist fight on the bus and they woke up and they ended up, you know, resolving it, but they're like, dude, we just, yeah, we just hired a, you a week ago over, and now yeah. you got to go home. It was over a girl. If I remember correctly, all the yeah. story in the book. Mm-hmm. 
See, uh, that's why I, that's why I tour so much. I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> so I get carry on talking about this into segment seven. Um, you, you said you didn't really have an idea of going out on the road, and you kind of grew up in a fa- fairly religious yeah. background. We would say we don't have to get into any details about that, but you grew up in a certain way, and then you went to live this life on the road with, which is essentially a bunch of pirates that are just. <laughs> Drinking, swearing, smoking—like it's like that part of it is fairly accurate. That it is, it's just it's it's rough and tumbled, yeah. just craziness on the it's road. Like carnies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how was that adjusting to that? How did it change the way you've you've thought about your life about everything? Because it became your life now for three or four years. You've yeah. been so immersed in it. Yeah, I, uh, so yeah, like, as you said, I grew up in like a fairly traditional Christian home. Um, and so like my, my thoughts of the world were fairly contained into like one idea. Um, and then like even going to, when I went to college, like I stuck in that, I uh, went to a Christian university. Um, uh, and then a couple years later I started touring and all of a sudden I'm like with this completely different group of people that I had never really interacted with before. Like I, I'd never really been around rock and roll bands or rappers or whoever I might be working for. Um, and you know, you see like, uh, you see the entire world we've gotten, we've got to see the entire world. I've been in like crazy different cultures from like when we tend to spend time in South Africa to going to Russia and experiencing yeah. that. And the biggest thing is probably like understanding that, whoa, there's, there's a lot of other lives out there just in general. There's a lot of other way people live, uh, than what I had grown up living. Um, and so experiencing that in our context, uh, I, it's, it's changed a lot in my life of how I interact with people and how I talk to people and, uh, even along like, all the way back to like my family, like I interact with my family very differently now as like an adult too, um, mm. <laughs> not being a, a kid anymore growing up in their house, but, uh, yeah, know what they want in their mix. Yeah. <laughs> Mom? Mom, I'm yeah, turning I, you down. I, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not, I think it's an obvious point if you view it as that, you know, which is that there's different people the way and they di- live differently. But I would say that you don't really get that experience other than viscerally, as you said, because you can, you can go watch documentaries about, you can watch, you know, uh, Human Planet and yeah. have David Attenborough narrate about the different way people live. And that's valid. It's a source of information. But, but experiencing the, it and like yeah. actually being in lo- like locations with people that are it's totally different than yeah. you. Well, yeah, it's, it's actually can have an effect on your life. I remember yeah. we yeah. were in Mexico City at the beginning of this year, and you and Jason and uh, Mo, I think, and I were walking around a square there. And I was just thinking about this kind of silly idea that, it, like, if you had some kind of weird social program that forced everyone to travel for a year, mm-hmm. it would dramatically change the way people interact with one another. Because it is, it's impossible to hold on to any really f- steady idea of how like human beings should live. Yeah. And then meet millions of human beings or millions of different ways of living. You just can't have that same belief and think this, this is the one way everyone should yeah, live. Yeah, definitely. And that's it's impossible. Kind of, that's probably, you probably hit it right on the head. That's a, one of the biggest things that's changed is that I, I grew up believing this was the way of life. This is how I live my life. This is how I'm supposed to live my life. It's how everybody should live their life is what I'm doing. It's right. Uh, 
that's also because I always think I'm right. But, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's any different from the way most people, and you know, us probably included, view life. I think maybe people, when they hear that story, they think, oh, that traditional uh, Christian, maybe myopic view of life is not the way I live life. But really, if it, is, my, the, it yeah. is the way everyone lives life. They, yeah. Everyone has a myopic view. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that once, you, once, you've, once you've been able to do what we do and travel yeah. as we have, especially with a group that has these kinds of conversations a lot uh, late at night, and um, that, that view changes. So it's not even about my view anymore. It's about just saying, oh, there's, just, there's a lot of things here that we haven't discussed or even explored. So who am I to think that my, I'm right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think... Garen, you are, if you don't mind me saying, you are, I would consider a, you have a moderate temperament. And it's one of the, one of the essential qualities of this life is you, if you're easily phased by things, if you're thrown, if you get angry easily or depressed easily or whatever, tour life just doesn't work for you because you literally have a new challenge thrown on you every day. It's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a strange life. And so, where you came from and then all these experiences that uh, are thrown at you, you know, a certain kind of temperament might take that and have a very reactionary, uh, you know, the classic story of somebody who just rebels and kind of maybe goes exactly opposite to where they came from. And from my perspective, I wouldn't categorize your experience as that, is that you, you've taken a very moderate and sort of logical look at this at what you've encountered in over the last few years and uh you know the idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater you know that doesn't seem to come uh, into your life that's that's my view and i think i think that's valuable is that one thing is not necessarily drastically better than yeah. than another thing which you you you've, you're seem to be able to take the good from all kinds of thanks jesse okay that's um that. compliment over back <laughs> You're talking about when people grow up in a specific way of life, and then the pendulum just swings. Yeah, yeah. you like, react. I've like a number of friends that I had growing up reacted and went and like moved somewhere and like experienced a completely different culture than they grew up with, and threw everything away. They like, become like, militant, from their, like from their childhood. Anarchic yeah. atheists yeah, living exactly. in Berlin. Um, it's usually <laughs> an indication that what they had from their childhood is so deeply embedded that they're, you know, emotionally reacting to it. Yeah. And it's not, totally. they're, not you, they're not really getting rid of it because to get rid of something that was embedded in childhood is like a very s- slow, difficult, confusing thing. You can't just change the outward, you change your clothes and, you know, get a new job and then everything from your childhood is gone. Yeah. Or, we're talking at least new set about of like reacting to it. Like the, the shock value of like being homeschooled your entire life and then wait were you homeschooled no i wasn't no sorry uh, i'm speaking of friends from ex- other experiences you know someone who's like homeschooled their entire life and then all of a sudden thrown like go to like a like a big state school for college yeah you know that's a huge shock and mo- the majority of the time that you see that sort of thing happen that person goes very far like in some direction yeah. you know it's and try as we might no matter how many times we play Come With Me Now to you, we've yet to convert you to Satanism. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is that, yeah, there's a, like Mormons, they call them Jack Mormons, uh-huh. when they kind of 
grow into adulthood. Uh, Jack Mormon is someone who's com- strayed so far from Mormonism that you know they'll be drinking Pepsi or something like that. <laughs> no, that's, that's a Jack noise. <laughs> Jack and Pepsi and doing and they stray very far. What's interesting is that the Amish supposedly have. That the majority of people, because they have something in their culture that they almost are forced to go out and experience the world for a year. Once they be turned sixteen or eighteen or something like that, they're they're forced to leave the community behind, and they go out and experience the world, and they they get up to some crazy shit supposedly, and then but the majority of them actually go back to yeah. Amish. I mean, from living. their perspective, that's a good thing, and then from another person's perspective, that's like a recidivism rate, right? So right. Depending on what your bent is, <laughs> so. Yeah, depending on what you think of as good, then somebody going back to what they grew up with or not is good or bad. So, like you, well, how? I guess I have a question: Is how do you inculcate that idea of being open to different uh, idea, different ways of life, and different perspectives? If someone's not able, if they don't have the financial means to travel, you know, a, mm. a program like that, a social program like you're talking, I know you're being somewhat facetious, but that would bankrupt the world. Yeah, no, know, no, I didn't or, mean it like literally. I just mean in a theoretical like game simulation mode imagine if every kid Mm. came out of college spent a year traveling i think it would dramatically change the amount of kind of stupid old-fashioned racism or classism or you know uh, xenophobia that exists would it because what about people who who traveled i mean and still came back with their yeah you're not going to eliminate it but what is the inner um, what what is it on your in your inner life that you can try to teach or open someone else up to um, that might not have the possibility of traveling for work or traveling after college or you know seeing out of their own and experiencing other ways of life? And I don't cultures? know if you can. I feel like it's 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 something that probably I would think it's just something innate in people. Like you can have someone go travel for a world. Uh, travel the world for a long time and they can come back and still be stuck in the exact same thought in the exact same way that they are. Um, I think it has to be quite a strong, something that snaps you out of your normal mode of being and gives you a true sense of empathy, which means really that you have to confront something that's not permanent or uh, it's like you need to confront your own death. Maybe not that extreme of an example, but like, where you can no longer be attached to the way that you acted before. You know, if people can have these same types of experience, I think, where they become more open to and less judgmental or kind of single-minded and myopic through a number of ways of happening. Like they have a medical emergency or they have a loved one that they lose. It just opens up their mind to the possibility of other ways of existing. Well, so, I mean, you're talking about basically a shock that snaps you out of your yeah. your automatic behavior. I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that it's unbelievably hard to break mm. what you've grown up with, to, to break the sort of patterns that have been inculcated in you from birth, whether it's your natural surroundings or it's the culture or your family or your school or whatever. These things get programmed into us, and that's almost impossible to break so yeah. I think I, you know without trying to diagnose the, the world's or each individual's problem within the world I think one, a simple thought that uh, I try to kind of have occasionally which is that maybe I'm not right <laughs> it's yeah. as simple yeah. as that maybe 
just just maybe I'm not right. I think you're right, Jesse. <laughs> no, but I could. That's, that's the, the only time I've I been right. I could go along with what you what you said. It takes a long time because I would probably say that even you know with with my uh, the life that I grew up with. And over the last three to four years, my experiences, and they don't contradict each other or anything, but it's the last few years has been uh, like a, a, what's the word, Uh, a progression of thought for me. And it's probably wasn't until the, the last year or so in which I think I was finally able to say, okay, I'm gonna take a step back here and actually be able to, to think about this properly. You know, think about life and think about, um, you know, getting outside of the only thing that I knew growing up mm-hmm. and being able to step back from this. So it probably wasn't even until like the last year or six months where I've been able to do that logically and what I feel like was soundly. Yeah, I think there's something I've noticed on the road. A lot of people tend to fall into this nihilism of where it's not even it's not anti-religious. It's just literally everyone's beginning is looking for some novel new experience because things get boring out in the road Mm -hmm. so you end up meeting a lot of these people on the road that are just like they feel like they're just drifting looking for like the next thrill because like there's only so many bars you can go to you start looking for like oh i need some new little thrill that can give me some meaning or like feel like it's not all just the same yeah but that's that's not Exclusive to road light. No, no, it's no. definitely more evident though because you you experience what you experienced in the town you grew up in, and then you experience that in every single other place on the planet. And right, but it, without that contrast, you would you would not perceive movement in any. Yeah, it's the of movement life. aspect of it that highlights because we're all doing the same. We're all basically repeating the same thing every day. But yeah, but that just is. Uh, what's that? Were you saying? Um, maybe I'm wrong. I was just saying that that once in a while, if you just allow that thought to pop into your head, maybe I'm not right, you know. And whatever I'm thinking, or what the current sort of the the momentum of a thought, where it starts to have a momentum of its own, where you think oh, this is how I think about this subject, or this yeah. is correct, this is my opinion, is it has a momentum where you no longer are forcing it; it's just going on its own. And if you step out of that for a second and just say, maybe I'm wrong, that, that's enough. That's enough to get the that's ball the rolling. Pain, the, for me, that's the painful part is, is not ac- acknowledging you were wrong is actually relief. Because that, that's when you give up on your idea and that's a great relief. It's like it's the part before that where you something in the back of your mind thinks you're wrong. What's and that's that? That, that's that tension between the two things. Because once you're beyond that you know, that threshold, and you've just accepted that you were wrong about something, it's actually very, it's a great relief. It's fighting that it- attachment you have to the feeling of being right is... Yeah, that's the pain. That's that, the that attachment part, yeah. is everywhere. You shouldn't, Jesse, you should make that a hashtag. That should be the number one political hashtag just for 2020. Often, <laughs> As Garen has being on the road, um, obviously some of it has made you question certain of your, you know foundation or your ideas that you've stuck to but has anything strengthened or is there anything specific where being on the road has strengthened certain ideas that you grew up with or or um reinforced anything like that no i don't i don't think like i couldn't see i couldn't see anything that had is like strengthened i don't know that's not i don't know if those are the right terms to to talk about it in uh but yeah i don't i don't know how to respond to that (laughs) <laughs> I haven't thought about it enough to to say something that would be coherent. Well, you were very coherent in saying that you don't know how to respond, so I'll give you points for that. <laughs> well, you could have said something, but you 
maybe you would have been wrong. I would just been talking out my ass anyway. So, <laughs> well, what was that euphemism that was on that we heard? Intellectual phase coherence for when people. That's are, a whatever you just said. It made sense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, when you when what, what was that in the context of? I, was, I don't know what you're talking. It about. was um, it, Rupert Sheldrake, that guy. See, I'm not in a position to scientifically evaluate this stuff, but he was talking about the fact when they were studying, when they were doing speed of light tests, uh, and when they had the technology to study this, they kept getting different results with regard to the speed of light. It wasn't constant. And before they settled on a constant speed of light as a, as an average, you know, 186,000 miles per second. And so they were adjusting their numbers in a lot of their studies. And when he asked one of the, the head of the department of, what was it? Well, MIT for, for constants. This, all this fucking guy studies is constants in the universe. And he said, you know, they were getting different results on the speed of light. And he says, yeah, it's a dark period in the history of science. And he said, is it just fudge factors? And he said, no, it's intellectual phase coherence, which is when groups of people agree on something by making little nudge adjustments to their data. Right. But well, did we have the conversation about the Mandela effect before? Have we talked about that? Not sure. Is that with a different group of people? Mandela? As in Mandela. Nelson, as in Nelson Mandela. Mandela. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, no. I've heard this. I just don't know what... Well, it's the idea that it's like it's uh, communu- communally misremembering things. Oh, weird. Oh, right. So it's like like an entire group of people can misremember an event. Mm-hmm. Or like uh, like they use an example of how everybody... So Star Wars is coming out in December. Everybody, when they're quoting Star Wars, says, Luke, I am your father. And that's not the line. He never says the word Luke in the movie. Huh. Like in that moment. He doesn't uh, say that at all. It's from Tommy Boy. He, he, that's what they're remembering. Yeah, it could be. So but like, what's the relation? Why is it called so the So there's, uh, I mean, you, you guys. Being, oh, it's the aura. Of, you mean it's the, that, you mean it's, it's the idea. Because it started when, like whoever came up with it was talking about uh, in, in South Africa. There was a whole group of people that remembered Nelson Mandela dying. Or something along those lines. Oh, before yeah. he actually did. Hmm. Um, I don't remember the oh. whole thing about it, uh, but there was like this entire like group of people or nation that remembered that guy died and he didn't, or like you know it was something to do with that. Hmm. But it's if you look it up, you'll find yeah. it. Uh, examples of the Mandela effect. Well, there's the there's um, the, uh, what's it called Shazam, that movie, right? Not the app. People, <laughs> are you talking about the movie with Shaq? Right. That's exactly perfect. It's Kazam. Everybody remembers it as Shazam. Oh, that's crazy. See, it's <laughs> yeah. like there's all sorts of things Wait, like and that. And there's that, also, but there's another element to that story, which yeah, they remember other felt, actors in it. People thought Sinbad was in it, but it was Shaq. Right, yeah. The people are like, it was a movie with Sinbad called Shazam. Yeah. <clears throat> all right, well, the Mandela effect refers to a phenomenon in which a large number of people share false memories of past events referred to as confabulation in psychiatry. Uh, some have speculated that the memories are caused by parallel universes splitting into our own, while others explain the phenomenon as a failure of collective memory. The origin is in 2010, blogger Fiona Broom coined the term Mandela Effect to describe a collective false memory she discovered at the DragonCon convention, where many others believed that former South African President Nelson Mandela died during the imprisonment in the 1980s. That year, Broom launched the site Mandela Effect to document various examples of the phenomenon, and then it gives a bunch of different uh, ideas yeah, of where basically but, collective false memory. Well, yeah, just like what you were saying with the the what was the term? Uh, phase. Oh, intellectual phase coherence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what he was meaning by that. I, I just drew parallels between those two things. Well, I think 
before it gets a little too discombobulated for us all and we lose all energy for the rest of the evening's work, <laughs> should, we, should we leave it at that and say thank you to Garen Rains G, as we know him, for this uh, wonderful podcast and also for the wonderful work he does that helps our stage show happen. And speaking of phase coherence, let's go f- sort out those speakers that were <laughs> That's good. giving us we a problem. We have been having some phase coherence issues with those. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Garen. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Make sure you head to congress.com slash podcast. I'm going to keep saying it weird every time. Oh, uh, there, is some, there is one last thing I would Sorry. like to say about that is that when we've gotten a lot of uh, comments and questions uh, of people to, saying that they're not getting notified or they don't know where to find the podcast, obviously it's Google Play, iTunes, and uh, Stitcher, and as well as our website. But if you hit subscribe and you turn on push notifications in your settings on your phone, every time we upload a new uh, podcast, it will show a little notification on your phone so you won't be left in the dark. Cool. All right. So See you guys next front week. Lounge with Congo, so we're going to find a weirder way to say podcast every week. <laughs> <laughs>